Hey, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we're continuing along in our series, Now What? A series on spiritual maturity. Uh, For those of you that maybe are just now uh, visiting or you've been here maybe a week or two, uh, we've been going through a series on spiritual maturity, looking at what it means to grow in Christ. We started uh, specifically looking at what it is uh, and our incentive for wanting to grow, not remain stagnant, but to develop and to grow uh, in the nature of Christ our Messiah. We then looked at the fruit of that, things like virtue and the fruit of the Spirit and, of course, love. And now, uh, and for the remainder of the series, we're looking at the means, how to do it, how to get a hold of it, how to move forward. So we looked at things like renewing the mind, uh, transforming habits, and this Sunday, I want to look at an environment for spiritual growth and maturity, that is the community of faith. I want to look specifically at uh, a text that you may or may not be uh, familiar with, but uh, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. I just want to spend the remainder of our morning on a single verse, verse 42. We'll just start just to give it a little bit of context in verse 41. Gospel writer Luke is uh, recording the events and he says this, verse 41, so those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we wanna come before you right now in the name of Jesus and by the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit to see and to understand all that you have for us today, and we ask that we would, even as the the rain was falling this morning and last night, the thunder was echoing throughout the city of Santa Barbara for the first time in a long time, Lord, we remember your word through the prophet Isaiah, as the rain falls down from heaven and does not return there but waters the earth, so your word that goes out from your mouth shall not return to you empty, but it shall accomplish that which you purpose. And so we pray that you would reign just as you reign on the city of Santa Barbara and on California, you would reign on our emaciated, dry, longing, hungry, thirsty hearts with the bread of life that is your word. And we pray that we would find it and we would be satisfied by it. Thank you that Christ, you are the living water. You're the one who got up in the middle of a feast and proclaimed to all of Jerusalem, if anyone is thirsty, he can come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And we pray that this church would be a large conduit of living water flowing out of our hearts into one another's hearts and out into this wonderful city that you put us in. We're asking for living water today, God. And we pray that you would do it, not just in individuals who proclaim your name, but in a community that has been called by your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you get, you know, I want you to imagine you're on the scene in, in Jerusalem. 
You got saved. This Galilean fisherman preaches the gospel. Holy Spirit hits you in that spot that you're standing. You get radically regenerated and saved all of a sudden before you even know it. You're getting dunked in the, in the Sea of Galilee. You're being baptized and then you're let loose. What happens after that? What are the next steps that we would take after that initial conversion experience, after that initial point in which we say, I want to follow Christ? So much about the series, so much about the series before this has been that, that confrontation that we're trying to, to allow the word to bring to bear on us. Do we want to follow Christ? We've been looking at his sayings, his teachings. We've been confronted by his lifestyle. We've been confronted by his kingship and lordship, all asking this question, right? I hope we're asking the question, do we want to follow this guy? He demands and requires a lot, and yet he gives so much more in return, but do we want to follow him? Perhaps you have answered that question uh, in the affirmative, and you're like, I want, I want to follow this Messiah. Now what do I do? I made the decision, now what do I, now what do? I do? What, I want to, what I want to look at this morning is to look at the original community of faith, Men and women, children, boys, girls of every generation who are in the same spot that perhaps some of us are now. I I see in Christ someone and something worth following. Now what do I do? And how do I do it? The same question being faced thousands of years ago was the forming of a community of faith from every generation gathering around Christ. Very simply, gathering around Christ. And what we're going to see, at least what I, I hope we see, in some of these verses before us is something that deep down many of us really deeply long for. When you read the descriptions of the early church, and not to, not to paint this romantic picture of the early church, if you read some of the letters to the early church, I recommend Corinthians, you'll see that they're pretty messed up, just like the church today. Pretty messed up because it's filled with a bunch of messed up people. But you also see a... a, a, a a spark of hope. You also see a deep set purpose. You also see something worth living for. You also see something that that ends up keeping sinners, messed up people who hurt each other, together trying harder because they have something great to live for. And we see that first happening in this group of hoodlums in the middle of Jerusalem. But it's what we, it's some of the things that we touch on are things that we long for. And it's also, when we speak of community, real community, not just the buzzword that we throw around, whatever, whatever real community is, some of us are asking, we also would say it's, it tends to be pretty elusive and evasive. We live in a culture that is increasingly disconnected. We persuade ourselves and perhaps convince ourselves that we are growing more connected, but we don't feel connected. We feel less connected. Sherry Turkle, uh, uh, one of the directors at MIT, was once quoted in the New York Times as saying, I can be intimately in contact with 300 people on email, Twitter, Facebook, and the like, but when I look up from my computer, I feel bereft. There's an illusion in our lives that we are surrounded by thousands of people, hundreds of people, and yet more lonely than ever before. Perhaps some of that has come into the church community. We're surrounded by people, singing the same songs, listening to the same message, going to the same places, doing the same things, believing the same things, only to go back on Monday uh, morning and afternoon feeling more lonely than ever. And it's not just culture that's disconnected, that has that sense of disconnect, broadly speaking, but it's really Santa Barbara, 
It's really Santa Barbara. For a lot of us, it's increasingly difficult to make friends beyond that surface level. It is a very difficult, it can be a very difficult little town to cultivate the type of community that we dream about and see about in scripture. For one, for a lot of us, there's simply just a lack of time. It's not that our intentions are bad, it's that we're busy. And everybody all over the planet says that they're busy. Have you noticed that? How you doing? I'm busy. Hey, how's life? It's crazy busy. But in Santa Barbara, I have to sympathize with Santa Barbans because it seems like Santa Barbans actually are busy. Whether it's to, uh, you know, whether it's uh, college students who are busy studying or young entrepreneurs who are busy with a startup or moms and dads that are busy with two kids, three kids, four kids, five kids, maybe. People are just busy trying to make rent, juggling three jobs just to live in this town, et cetera, et cetera. The line that, that kind of bursts out of our, our souls is, I'm busy. I want to connect. I want to be more involved. I want to go deeper, but I'm, I'm just busy, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a way around it. Add to that, there, there's no real shared space, common space. We have to go to places like Starbucks to get like an outsourced sense of space or a coffee shop or any, cent, uh, any, any type of thing like that where a space is being sold to us so that we can be around people. We find ourselves around people drinking coffee and more lonely than ever because they're not talking to us. This town is small enough to know people but not tight enough to get to know them. It almost takes on a, almost a a sliver of that suburban feel, even though it's not a suburb, thank God, it's a city, but it takes on a bit of that flavor where there isn't enough forced interaction in shared spaces that are often conducive to create lasting, uh, lasting relationships. You just don't run into each other enough and on a deep level in order for those relationships to go down. You're, you're commuting, you're going to this side of town, you don't run into each other except on the street, maybe in the grocery store. It's all very, it can all be very surfacey. Perhaps you're saying it is very hard to break into relationships here. One person uh, told me, And once you do, if you do, if you've done all that you need to do to break into deep relationships in Santa Barbara, as one person put it, you don't, you end up loving it so much you don't want to lose what you have and so you stop branching out and meeting other people. You just keep it for yourself. I can resonate with that. Jane Jacobs, an urban planner uh, in Manhattan uh, in the early days, 70s, 80s, 90s, wrote this book that was a hit called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. She once said, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they are created by everybody. In other words, it's not necessarily Santa Barbara's fault. It's how we choose to live. Acts chapter two, verse 42 uh, presents us with a a breath of fresh air. It uh, presents us with a different way of living of being able, enabled, given permission to say, I don't have to be conformed to the culture in which I'm living. I can live a different way. And the breath of fresh air that it provides for us is this picture of Christian community. And the calling of Christian community that we see involves affecting some of these very problems that we see. 
some of these surface relationships, some of these deep things that happen, some of these uh, uh, things that we long for. And, and it doesn't just affect them so that we ourselves can be affected, but that, so that we can provide some of that stuff, some of those blessings of Christian community to the outside world, to the rest of Santa Barbara, our neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. People who are not, quote unquote, a part of the church can experience what deep, meaningful, Christ-like relationships are like. It's meant to affect us as a body and spill off into our streets, onto Alta Vista and Milpas and Carrillo and Patterson and so on and so forth. It's meant to affect the environment in which we live. So I want to I present at least three things from this really short verse, verse 42, about Christian community. One, what what Christian community looks like. Not exhaustively, but just a little picture to to whet our appetites. Two, how Christian community is possible. And three, why we, we desperately need it. We desperately need a taste of it at the very least. So what does Christian community look like when we, uh, I wanna strip us of all the connotations, both good and bad, that we have in our modern day of what community is supposed to look like, Christian community. I wanna take us back to the first century on the after, in, the, in the aftermath, on the heels of Christ's direct involvement in his disciples' life. You have to ask yourself, what, what were some of the things that happened immediately after Jesus Christ had his way with the world? And two things happened, right, to, to kind of start this. He rose from the dead, kind of a big deal, and then he leaves, ascends to the right-hand side of, of God the Father, sends his Holy Spirit, another big deal. So Jesus rises from the dead, proves that he's Lord and King over even death and everything else, and then he sends the power of his Holy Spirit to be present with us. And those are the two things that the early church is left with that we still have today. Uh, have today. I wanna look through their eyes just for a moment because for them, it may be even more potent for them than us. Some things lose their freshness when we grow too familiar with them. I hope we are broken out of our supposed familiarity with the resurrection and the Holy Spirit and it begins to exude a sense of freshness and revival and urgency in our souls today. But here's some of the the, the things that immediately happen. Jesus rises from the dead, sends the power of his Holy Spirit, and immediately a community forms around Christ doing certain things. He lists four things. This isn't, again, an exhaustive list. A Christian community can do other things, but they're, they're at least these four things, right? First thing that he says is they began to receive, uh, or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching... When the gospel writer Luke speaks of an apostolic teaching, he's not using an adjective to refer to the passion or desire or power of the person speaking the message, but the origin of the message that's being spoken. You did not receive this message from men, you received it from God, Paul would say to the Thessalonians. It wasn't so much that it was a matter of our personal interpretation, but God moved on people's hearts as they spoke from God. He would say to the, Gal- uh, uh, I believe to the Galatians. In other words, God spoke through people as they were witnessing to Jesus Christ. I could, we could trace this apostolic teaching 
through all the way to Matthew 28 where Jesus looks at his apostles, his disciples, and he gives them a command, right? Make disciples, baptize them, and what does he say after that? Teach all of my disciples to observe everything that I have commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach disciples how to do and observe everything that I've taught you. And so they went on doing it. And they went on writing letters about what that looked like. And they testified of what Jesus said and what he did and what he commanded. And, what, uh, uh, and his interpretation of the Old Testament. And this was passed on. Before it was even written down, it was passed on verbally from person to person. Years later, Paul would start writing letters and those letters were dispersed and shared between communities, little house churches and other churches. And so it wasn't simply that one person was having a devo, you know, in his living room on his papa's on chair drinking tea, although that's fine too, but it was that the word of God was being experienced in relationships to other people. They were looking at it, they were talking about it, they were helping each other interpret it, and they were bouncing off the power of God between one another. They were experiencing it in community. They were discussing it, perhaps arguing over it, debating it, enjoying it, going deeper into it, training themselves to obey it, listening to it, loving it, apostolic teaching. I'm going to skip that second one, fellowship. We'll come back to that at the end. Make, yourself, uh, make your way to breaking of bread. It goes on to say, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, it could be that in the midst of this, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, just like when we take communion during the uh, second set of worship together. It might include that. Not absolutely sure. What we're sure of is it really just spoke of a general meal. as what would have been called table fellowship uh, in those ancient times, something that was incredibly deep and meaningful in that time, much like it is now. I'm not necessarily talking about you know, going to a restaurant or getting together, you know, even at a, a thing like a summer gathering or something like that, even though there's a lot of value in all of those things. I'm speaking about this this age-old tested practice of hospitality where your door is opened, the space of your home is open to other people. They are able to invade your space, hospitality, and you're sharing with them a meal. You're centered around a table, table fellowship. Uh, Among the Jews in this ancient time, even in that culture, it was one of the most profound ways of showing someone else that you accepted them. It was a deep sign and symbol of friendship. There was nothing deeper. There was nothing deeper in the realm of friendship than eating in your home around a table with someone else. That was why it was so offensive to the Pharisees when Jesus ate with people like prostitutes and tax collectors. What was he saying? He wasn't just trying to fill his stomach with good food. He was declaring to the world, I came to be friends with these people. I came to be friends with them. I came to accept them and to call them to be mine and to call them to follow me. I love these people. And it was an offense to those who, you know, wanted to to be seen around the table with people just like them. For them, the, the table was more a sign of power and status. For Jesus, it was a sign of redemption. And he spent a lot of time doing this. There was a particularly favorite book of mine written by this English pastor called A Meal with Jesus. It's a really short read. It's essentially a theology of food. 
and it documents every time, basically, that Jesus eats, and it spends a lot of time in Luke, and at one point, uh, author, I think his name's Tim Chester, he says, in, uh, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always eating. In fact, you could call this the mission statement in the Gospel of Luke, where it declares that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, He came, that was his mission statement. That was how he declared himself to be who he was. And no matter what you read, any instance of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it seems like he's either on his way to a meal, in the middle of a meal, or coming away from a meal. In fact, so often did he celebrate and party and eat and drink with his friends, sinners, nonetheless, that the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Gospel of Luke. Now, he wasn't getting drunk, I doubt that, the, that God was a glutton, but certainly he was eating and drinking and sharing meals with people so much that it irked the Pharisees enough to, to insult him in that way. He ate a lot, and he ate with specific people, people who didn't often get invited to parties. He opened up space for them, space that even today comes at a tremendous cost and is hard Hard to get around to. The last one, or the second to last one, I should say, is prayer. And it's in the plural. Uh, you know, Gospel writer Luke says that they devoted themselves to the prayers. He's most likely referring to a set of prayers, uh, perhaps the Psalms, collections of prayers that Jews would recite together. And so was there, there was a sense of community. There were also set times in the day where they would stop what they were doing and they would pray together. Now, this isn't necessarily saying we need to pray written prayers together, although that's awesome, nor does it mean we all need to pray at noon together, although that would be awesome too, but rather it's getting at this sense that prayer is not always just individualistic, but it's corporate. The early church got together and they prayed together. The early church got together and they read the Bible together. The early church got together and they ate food together right? There's this specific times where they got together and they experienced fellowship, that last one that we skipped over, which really is this broad umbrella speaking to this this truth and this reality in the church that they shared everything. Their lives were intersected. Their lives overlapped. All four of these things speak of an intentional and strategic carving out of time and space where in that culture perhaps there was no space and time to carve out. The church said this is absolutely important for us and even if I don't have time, even if I don't have space, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna sacrifice what I need to to open my home up, to open my space up, to open my time up to my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So deeply did they feel about this that Luke says that they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. The original language that uh, that Luke is speaking with, it speaks about this persistent, ongoing, incessant devotion to a task. They were obsessed with these four things. It wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a hobby. Like every once in a while, if it's convenient, they were, they were persistently obsessed with these things. The particular phrase that Luke uses occurs 10 times in the whole Bible. Six of those times in the book of Acts. So you want to see where at least an element of the power of Christian community comes from? These, these, these newborn, fledgling Christians who were obsessed with opening up the scriptures in fellowship, eating with one another, and praying to their God. 
It's simple. It's so simple. There's a pastor by the name of Randy Frizee who wrote a book called The Connecting Church where he was just so frustrated uh, with his own church and the experience that he had where people just could not connect with one another. There was that symptom of being together in a large room surrounded by a bunch of people but not having deep connection. He, he wondered like, I wonder how other people, how other groups, how other communities do it. And he began to document and look at various groups uh, from Jesus and his disciples to uh, milibar- uh, military bases, even to street gangs, looking at these strong, powerful sense of communities. And after studying, he's, he quotes, after studying effective places of community, such as the life Jesus had with his disciples, an Israeli kibbutz, a, a military base, Larsh, and even the effective community of a street gang, I identified a bunch of characteristics of community centered around, here's his three things, common purpose, common place, and common possessions. Anywhere, in other words, he's saying that there is a deep, thriving community, whether big or small. I always tend to see these three things, purpose, place, and possessions that everyone is sharing. Interesting that these three are so evident in the book of Acts. We have a common purpose centered around the apostolic message of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose, that changes our lives, let's get together and have everything in common. Purpose, right? There was a shared sense of place, homes opening up, spaces by the river, I think of Paul and Lydia, space by the river, it doesn't have to be a a home, it's just space, sacred space, being opened up for people to gather together. And common possessions, food, Belongings. We see that in the verses to come. Everything was shared. The early church community was cultivated around a sense of sharing and belonging and hospitality and generosity, simple things that seemed to evade culture in general. It was what shaped them early on. You have to ask the question, well, who did it shape? Notice that as Peter, he just got done preaching the sermon, And everyone is together. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Things start to change. People get saved. They're all centered around the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And they're in one place. They're celebrating, as as we just passed by in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost actually shows up as early as Exodus and Deuteronomy. It wasn't that Peter invented the day. It was actually an old Jewish holiday, a feast day, and it was actually a pilgrim festival. There were seven feasts that the Jews would celebrate, and three of those feasts were what were called pilgrim festivals, meaning Exodus chapter 23 tells us that during these festivals, he requires, God requires uh, adult males to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate that particular holiday, uh, holy day, or that feast. Day of Pentecost is one of them. It wasn't just the men that would do this, right? We see an example of this in Luke chapter two where Joseph is making that pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the pilgrim days, and it says when Jesus was 12 years old, he went and accompanied his family according to tradition. And so we actually see during this moment in time, what we're looking at in Acts chapter chapter 2 is a whole family, whole families, generations, young, old, small, big, woman, male, child, whatever else there is. 
all together making a pilgrimage to this place. And it's those generations that are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. The disciples were together at Pentecost, both young and old. In fact, the prophet Joel was the one who prophesied that this would happen. As Peter quotes in Acts chapter two, Joel said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Every generation together in the word of God, sharing meals, praying together and exalting the name of the Holy One of God. A huge component, we would have to say, of this ancient Christian community was old and young together in shared space and time looking to Christ with one another. Over the years, reality has seen the value of intergenerational relationships. Anytime that it happens really well, we see the effect of it. What we see is that young generations, whatever that age is, with their passion, with their typical zeal, even a sense of naivety, rubs off on everybody else. Their sense of reckless abandon to follow Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost, seems to affect everyone else. Over time, and I can experience this as well, over time I get stuck in a rut, I get used to the way my life is supposed to be, and all I need is some 21-year-old just, just fresh out of college that's like, what are you doing, Chris? Why aren't you changing the world? And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna go get diapers at Costco, but you know, I don't really. <laughs> and I need that, man. I need that. And I'm not so far removed from younger generations. I'm only 34. And yet I can easily get, just get caught up into making it through life, sustaining myself, preserving my life, making sure everything is, is ironed and washed and cleaned. I need younger generations to to rub me the wrong way, that way. I need them to step on my toes and to show me, hey, it's an exciting life to follow Christ. I also need younger generations to express their real questions about the faith, to be honest and transparent, uh, transparent with their doubts because that ends up sharpening me. It causes me to ask the same questions, to not be satisfied with just the uh, with with just being. Uh, with just getting along on my parents' faith or tradition, but to examine the scriptures, to wrestle with it, and to ask God with honesty and transparency, Lord, what's the truth? But we'd also have to say that it's not just older generations that need younger generations, it's younger generations that need older generations. You might be 19 years old, starting college, or in the middle of college, you have a community of 20-year-olds that you think are your mentors. That's fine. But sooner or later, when you really start to suffer beyond getting a, you know, a C on your essay, or, you know, the, the, uh, the different relational things that young people run into, when you really suffer and life hits you, there's only so much a 22-year-old can share with you. I found that in my young age, what I really need is to be around a 40-year-old who's been walking with Christ for a while. To be around someone who's been walking with Christ and who has suffered and who is able to tell me, hey, you can make it. It's possible. There is hope. 
Now, I'm not saying that age itself is sacred. You could be 70 years old and just, just completely bonkers. You can be 70, uh, physically old, and yet spiritually immature. I'm not saying age itself or youth is worthy of, uh, of idolatry, but when age is mixed with a deep desire to follow Christ, there's that deep experience and wisdom that the book of Proverbs speaks so highly about. Younger people in their zeal and passion and faith need older people who have already done that and walked through it and are able to say, I have some, you know, I have some insights into what you're going through. I can speak to what you're dealing with. One of the things that we... Uh, Running out of time, so I'm going to skip all of that. It's okay, you can't see it anyway, so you don't know what you're missing. <clears throat> but I got a few minutes left, and it feels like the Mediterranean, so I'm just going to get to what I need to, and I, I want to camp out right here. Sooner or later, we see in the scriptures this, this broad vision of what what meaningful community is supposed to look like. And we dream about it, and we actually get into a Christian community, and a lot of us get really hurt by it and disillusioned and disappointed because it does not match what we thought it would be. We have an ideal. And some of you maybe came to reality because you had an ideal. You heard something about reality, and you are hoping that it matches your ideal. If I go here, I will meet friends, I will be fulfilled, I'll find someone to marry, you know, whatever the, the thing is, there's so many things that we, we're hoping for in community. I'll be accepted, people will love me, I'll become this, everything will be easy, all my problems will go away. Our expectations aren't met, we become disappointed. We look at the church and we say, you, you, you jacked me up. You let me down. And that actually does happen. We let each other down. Because we're, we're a bunch of messed up sinful individuals who, who hurt each other. That Christ is patiently trying to conform into his own image. But along the way, we hit some bumps. But so easy to look at that and see, see, like, I gave it a shot and it wasn't the, the pipe dream that I expected it to be. And I don't want to make small of the ways that we've been hurt by the Christian community. We've done some awful things to each other. I don't, I don't mean specifically us, just in, the, in, in history. And perhaps many of you have just been burned by people in the church. I'm so sorry for that. I know personally the pain of being burned by people in the church and yet something keeps drawing me back to it. And you know what it is? It's not necessarily the perfection of the people that I'm trying to be in communion with. It's that purpose. It's that person who keeps drawing us to himself. My hope isn't really in you or me. It's in the person who has great vision and dreams of making us just like him. I believe that he can do it. I believe that he can take, up, take messed up people and make us an image of himself corporately and individually. 
But every time we hoist up community itself as the great ideal, rather than simply a space for God to cultivate what he wants, we set ourselves up for disaster. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book on community life together wrote, those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself actually become destroyers of the Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Even in our best intentions, we destroy each other because we put onto each other expectations that no one else can bear. Things like, I want you to satisfy all of my needs, to make me feel better about myself, to take away my loneliness and my isolation, to fix all my problems, to hang out with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And nobody can bear that burden. Some of the burdens we want people to bear can only be uh, bore by Jesus Christ himself. The deeper question is, Do we come into a church, into a Christian community because we actually love people and that is something that is bursting from our hearts from a Christ who loves us or are we just trying to satisfy our own little needs? The Bible specifically teaches, no, you do not love people as you ought. Nobody in and of themselves loves their neighbor as themselves. They love themselves and they want their neighbors to love themselves too. That's the problem, people. That's my biggest problem in life is that I love myself too much. Every conflict, every display of my own selfishness, every mess up, every disaster, every disappointment, disillusionment, everyone that's ever been hurt by me, I can almost always trace to some form of me loving myself more than you. And Paul said, That's the problem Jesus came to fix. He he came to give you something greater to love. He said, Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in sons of disobedience. This is how you used to live like the rest of mankind. And the only way Christian community is possible is for a Christ, the Lord Jesus, to step into our rampant, viral self-love and to turn our inward focus onto himself before it goes anywhere else. Jesus is not just our savior. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter two, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus didn't just come to forgive people and get them all into a church building. He came to become their Lord and master. And as Christ is a Lord who deserves our worship, communities then become formed around him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We become formed around him and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, turning their hearts outward, away from their se- themselves, first to God and then onto, other, uh, onto each other. And so community for us is not just community for community's sake. It's more than just a hashtag or a buzzword. Let's do community. Why? I don't know. I'm bored. Not doing anything Friday night. Come over here. It then carries this deep meaning and deep sense of purpose and space and time. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42 aren't these random four practices that communities do that exist for, uh, as their own end goal. They all point to and com- uh, convince of and persuade and enable the knowing of Christ Jesus more intimately. We gather together reading the word to know Christ. We gather together eating meals to know Christ and to be known by him. We gather together and we pray to know Christ. We deepen in our fellowship to know Christ and as we know Christ, Christ, we know each other even deeper than before. All of a sudden, as this was happening in the early church, the Holy Spirit fell. And people who are normally identified around all sorts of random things like race, sexuality, gender, and age, all of a sudden became identified as being a part of Christ and his body, and everything changed. It lifted them out of a very small and simplistic storyline that they were writing for themselves and gave them a breath of heavenly air to breathe. Here's why, my last point, here's why we need Christian community. In an environment of busyness and a lack of shared space where we are not as open with each other as we could be and maybe as we would like to be, perhaps you would say, I I certainly want to, You know, I want to experience genuine belonging. And maybe at one point you stepped out with a sense of risk. You tried to get to know someone. Maybe you even did it in a church. But you got burned. Maybe you felt isolated. Maybe it wasn't returned. Maybe it was too hard. The list is perhaps endless. And maybe as a result of that, you are simply content with protecting yourself from getting hurt. It's one of the first problems. You shut off your own heart and you put up walls to protect yourself from others getting hurt. And yet you're wondering, why isn't anyone coming, like, why isn't anyone connecting with me? You're doing that, and as you're doing that, other people are doing that. We're putting up walls. We gather together in a building, and some of you are looking at a bunch of people, and the walls are up. We're all gathering. I'm speaking rhetorically, I'm not speaking to any of you specifically, but in general. The reason a a church can gather together with hundreds of people and still feel lonely is because we're gathering, putting up a version of ourselves that we either want to be or that's there to protect us from ourselves. We're faking it, wondering why we're not connecting at the heart level with other people. Brene Brown, a research professor at University of Houston, is doing this research project, and she said, after years of researching vulnerability and how people connect, she said, in order, she found that in order for connection to happen, we, we really need to be seen. And not like physically seen, but really known. She's speaking of vulnerability and transparency, but then she said, look around you, though. We are the most closed off and self-protected people that you've ever met. How do we protect ourselves? And she goes on to say, well, look at, look at U.S. history. We are the most in-debt, addicted, medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. All ways that we choose to numb ourselves from the pain that we're feeling and let, instead of letting other people into that pain to know us and to be known. We don't just numb ourselves by self-medicating. We could do it through a variety of subtle ways, like being certain. Maybe you close people off because you're certain about everything. I'm right and you're wrong. Try to make friends that way. 
Maybe that's the whole point. Maybe you don't want to get close to people, so you close them off by being an opinionated self. We do it by blaming others. We protect ourselves by putting the blame onto others instead of being real with our own mistakes. We pretend. There's so many ways we can protect ourselves from other people, and the Bible is really not about self-protection. It's about self-denial. And it teaches that counterintuitively, by opening ourselves up, by denying our own self, we actually gain the abundant life of Christ. Unfortunately, Brene Brown goes on to say, I think there's a better way. Not unfortunately, she's right. (laughs) She goes on to say, I think there's another way to do this right. And she goes on to say, let ourselves be seen deeply and love with your, own, your whole heart. As beautiful as that sounds, she kind of leaves it at that. And the question that comes up in my mind is, well, what if you can't love with your whole heart? Yeah, I know the, the solution that you're posing is transparency and love, but what if you can't be transparent because you feel so much shame, and what if you just don't love? What if you, your whole heart is not in that state where you can share it? The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that we are supposed to self-actualize or figure out our own lives or pick ourselves up by the bootstraps or be better persons, persons so that other people can, can enjoy us. The beauty of the gospel is that we could not love by ourselves and we did not love first. We did not step out and self-initiate but rather, 1 John 4.10, in this is true love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us. He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's God's love that changes individual people. And it's individual people who have been changed by God's love that end up changing one another. And it's people who have experienced and drinking deeply of the love of God who are then able to be a little vulnerable. Who are able to say, okay, I can open myself up to people even though they might burn me and hurt me and I'm really afraid of this, but I know that my identity is sealed in Christ. I know that my Father loves me. I know I belong to him. I know I've been adopted by him. I know that nothing that the enemy says about me can stick to me. Sticks and stones may break my bones and words can break them too. I know that to be true, but my identity is sealed in Christ. And so I'm just gonna be a little risky. I'm gonna set myself out there and be vulnerable. And all of a sudden, walls start falling. The walls that we have put up to pretend like we're someone that we're not. The walls that we have put up to try to protect ourselves from being hurt start to fall and you get a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more trusting. Things break down and all of a sudden, you're speaking into people's hearts. You're experiencing who they really are. John would later go on to say, We love because he first loved us. I want to leave you with two things to think about. So I wrap this up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up so we sing. One, if you want to be connected in any meaningful fashion to people, I suggest the first place that you start is to connect with God. The beauty about God and Christ is that he doesn't put up walls. (laughs) He's easy, man. You feeling isolated and lonely and empty and unsatisfied and unfulfilled? Throw yourself at the mercy of God today and say, I wanna know you, God. I wanna know you. I'm sick of just trying to spin my wheels, making things work out. I wanna know you. And after you are in that place of connecting with God, maybe ask God, hey, who in my life, who in my life can I reach out to? 
in my space that I occupy in the city of Santa Barbara, Goleta, Isla Vista, Montecito, Summerland, who am I intersecting with that I can, that I can share what you have given me? If you look on at verses 43 through 47, you see something by every stretch of the imagination is impossible for people to, to, pull, apart, uh, to pull together. All who were believed were together and had all things in common. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. People were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to everybody who had need. Day by day, they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in each other's homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You can't, you can't manufacture that, man. That's born of the power of the Holy Spirit. And as it's born in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I just want us to maybe consider posturing ourselves to be moved by the Holy Spirit. So let's do it. It's not that our community is spectacular in itself. It's that our redeeming factor is who it's centered around. Our hope is to gather around Jesus Christ. So let us allow him to form us into the type of community that he envisions. Let's fight against what culture tells us is the norm. Let's commit space to each other instead of being privatized. Let's sacrifice what's ours in order to be hospitable to others who don't have anything. Let's mix with many generations considering the value of what it means to be across different age groups. Let's carve out time even though we are busy. Let's say the best thing that I could do in the city of Santa Barbara right now is to spend some time with other people who love Jesus. Maybe you can't do a lot, but maybe you can do a little. Step out in faith and see if God doesn't radically transform this community, and not just this community, but the community of Santa Barbara, because Christian community itself is sacred. It's sacred because the risen Christ promised to dwell among us as we gather, changing us bit by bit. That's his promise, and that's our hope. Heavenly Father, pray right now in the name of Jesus that even now as we're gathered together in this special way, your spirit would manifest among us the fragrance of Jesus Christ. I pray for those right now that feel cut off and isolated, don't feel valued, feel lonely, empty. Pray that the first thing that they would experience this morning is the presence of the living God, the love of their Father, sweeping through their souls, showing and teaching them that you, you want them. Pray on the other end of the spectrum for those who have deep community, who have many friends, who know everybody and talk to everybody. We have a lot of shared relationships. I pray that maybe for the first time for them, a sense of commission would come upon them. Lord, to whom much has been given, much is required. And I pray that those of us who have been blessed with space and time and friendships and joy would begin to share that with those in need. Thank you that that's only possible through the power of the risen Christ. But we thank you, God, that you have rose. You have risen from the dead. 
And we pray that where deadness is felt in this community, life would permeate. In Jesus' name, amen.